it feels outlandish, it feels audacious, but this narrative keeps returning, and I dare ask, and again, it feels outlandish to ask, but is China making a play for the nickel market? That is my question here as we open up today's podcast. Hello and welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. My name's Adrian Pocabelli. I'm starting to see the first hints of spring out here. Maybe not so much in terms of temperature, but in terms of light. And that, my friends, is grounds for optimism in a year where many are not really seeing a lot of green shoots, so to speak, coming out geopolitically this year. So back to the story. Uh, Again, it feels audacious to ask such a question because the market is so big. Again, this isn't rare earths. This is nickel. However, this question keeps returning with this story here. In the Financial Times, the FT this morning, Indonesia's flood of nickel sparks Darwinian battle for survival among miners. Subheadline, Western capitals fear closure of unviable mines will increase China's control of critical resource. So the only difference really between the subheadline and my opener here is the intentions of China. Did this all just accidentally happen? Or is this more, you know, potentially calculated? I prefer understating things. So let's just imagine that this is unintentional. But again, just for the sake of arguing that it is, briefly, I mean, look at it from a strategic point of view. To a certain degree, if you're China, you have your opponents, the West, primarily America, focused on the South China Sea, Taiwan. I don't get the impression that Anthony Blinken, President Joe Biden, you know, the State Department, the Pentagon, maybe the Pentagon who knows, under the surface, not sure. But my impression is that their focus is more on this Taiwan and the sea. They're not focused on nickel. So to play devil's advocate here, if you're China, it's kind of a beautiful situation. You've deflected the attention of your opponent onto this Taiwan issue and the South China Sea. Meanwhile, without it even looking intentional, grabbing hold of the nickel market. And that is what we're seeing here in the Financial Times here. And the big question, is this intended? Is it not? Maybe it doesn't even matter to a certain degree. And before we take a closer look at this article, let me just recall stories we saw last week. So last week, nickel miners were closing. We had about four or five stories, and we're going to get a refresh here in this FT story. So that is last week. And don't forget, For those regular listeners here, the week before, which it's easy to forget, there was the World Economic Forum and there was the head, the president of the LME, took a Reuters reporter aside to say that the LME was thinking of getting pricing on its steel complex of metals from China. And to me, that kind of set off an alarm bells because I start going, if the pricing is done in China rather than in London, and don't forget the LME is owned by Hong Kong exchanges and clearing, if the pricing for metals such as nickel, potentially, I mean, I don't know how else to interpret that information. If you have different interpretations, do feel free to comment here on the YouTube, the SoundCloud, the Northern Miner website. We do monitor the comments here, and I'm more than happy to hear feedback on this. But when he talks about getting pricing from the steel complex of metals, one would assume nickel is in there. So I don't want to go too far. But what I do want to show is we have very clear, what I would call circumstantial evidence, that this market is gravitating towards China. 
in terms of pricing and in terms of the market itself, as we're seeing here with this synergistic relationship between Indonesia and China in terms of the production and processing of nickel. So let's take a closer look. This is Harry Dempsey in London, A. Anantha Lakshmi in Hong Kong, and Mercedes Ruel in Singapore. So three reporters on the story here. Indonesia is flooding the global nickel market with low-cost supplies, forcing rivals to shut unprofitable mines and sowing panic into Washington and Paris that the upheaval will give China more control over the strategic resource. We've been waving the flag on this for two weeks now. It is in the FT this morning. The country, the world's largest producer, expanded production by 30% last year to 1.9 million tons, even though global demand for the metal used in electric car batteries and stainless steel barely grew, according to investment bank Macquarie. Indonesia's aggressive push that has helped boost its market share to 55% last year, up from 16% in 2017, so 55% from 16%, in 2017 of the market Indonesia has now. However, the increased output also contributed to a 43% fall in the global price of nickel in the past year. And again, it recalls what I call the playbook here, what we've seen China do with rare earths, which is to flood the market, put all the mines out of business, and then you own the market. And it seems audacious to do that with nickel, but China, they seem to be masters of using capitalism against itself. Right. And it just seems to be here as audacious as it would sound. Again, this isn't the rare earth market. This is the nickel market. But it seems again, and I'm not claiming that it is, but it does look very similar to the playbook, doesn't it? Now, let's continue here. Traders and analysts fear that Indonesia's dominance of global supply will only grow as the metal's low price forces producers elsewhere to close unviable mines and put the brakes on new developments. And we have a quote from Jim Lennon, a veteran nickel market analyst at Macquarie. Quote, if we see a lot of non-Indonesian projects go to the wall, then Indonesia's share goes even higher. At the moment, there is no alternative. There is no big source being developed or approved elsewhere. End quote. Chinese companies have made huge investments in Indonesian nickel to secure low-cost inputs for their stainless steel and to meet the expected surge in demand for electric car batteries. The supply of industrial metals such as copper, lead, and zinc is typically 0 to 2% above or below annual demand, but nickel supply was about 6 to 8% above last year's 3.2 million tons of consumption because of Indonesia's supply boom, said Lenin. However, consumer and industrial demand from China has waned. The tepid economic recovery from Beijing's long zero COVID policy has curbed sales of electric vehicles. China has also been shifting to lower cost batteries free of nickel and cobalt meaning nickel demand last year was largely supported by the steel industry. The twin forces of increased supply and weaker demand has pushed the nickel price at the LME to about $16,500 a ton in the past year. Lennon estimated that current levels made more than half of global nickel production uneconomic. More than half of global nickel production was uneconomic last year. Nickel producers in Western Australia, one of the world's largest producing areas, have had a tough January. Billionaire Andrew Forrest said his group Wailu Metals would shut its nickel mines there, and BHP warned that it was quote-unquote evaluating options around Nickel West. Australian miner IGO said it may write off the value of the Cosmos nickel mine it only acquired 18 months ago, and First Quantum will halt mining at its Ravensthorpe site for two years, 
The potential closure of unprofitable mines has set off alarm bells in western capitals of an excessive concentration of supply in Indonesia, where the majority of mines, processing sites, and supply deals are controlled by Chinese groups. Chinese companies have also gained a technological edge in nickel processing and conversion technology. While also dominating global steelmaking and battery production, making it harder for potential buyers elsewhere to compete. Ashley Zumwalt Forbes, Deputy Director for Batteries and Critical Materials at the U.S. Department of Energy, wrote on social media that Indonesian and Chinese market dominance was a, quote, extreme threat, end quote, to national and international security, as well as the environment. Quote, it's Darwinian today. People have to die, end quote, said one nickel trader. Quote, Western governments need to either subsidize loss-making operations. It's not popular, but it's something, frankly, I've been basically advocating here for years. And nobody likes it. I don't like it. But at a certain point, are we just going to see another rare earth situation here if we don't get serious about supporting these mines? Nobody wants to see it. The miners don't want to see it. I don't want to see it. Probably most of you don't want to see the government getting involved in supporting mines. But this industry needs to ask itself, do they want these mines to survive? And can they afford to play with one hand tied behind their back against the Chinese? And I think the answer is no. So let me read this again. Quote, Western governments need to either subsidize loss-making operations, incentivize new low-cost operations in Indonesia and other places, or depend on the Chinese. All of the governments are saying the last one is untenable, but haven't got their head around the first two. End quote. Australian Resources Minister Madeleine King called over the weekend for buyers to pay a premium for more sustainable nickel to level the playing field with Indonesia for its producers. And of course, this is something that Robert Friedland has brought up, you know, again, probably a couple of years ago, this notion of there being, you know, ESG copper and that there should be some sort of pricing relating to sustainable versus unsustainable nickel. In recent weeks, French government delegations have been visiting New Caledonia, once a globally important nickel production hub, as they grappled with how much support to extend the French Pacific Island Territory's three large mine operators after each of them vowed to stop putting cash into loss-making operations. So the French government is already starting to consider how much money to invest into these mines. A senior Indonesian nickel executive said that while margins were becoming thin for local producers, they were hopeful of surviving the downturn longer than competitors in other parts of the world because of their low cost. As a result, analysts said the nickel producers outside of Indonesia faced more pain. And we can't, you know, assume either that Indonesia doesn't want to dominate the nickel market either. Of course, it's to their geopolitical and economic interests to dominate that market. And finally, here, Colin Hamilton at BMO in London, quote, we haven't seen enough cuts yet to say we've hit a floor. So that is what's happening in the nickel market here. Again, you see where geopolitics is deeply, deeply intertwined with natural resources here. And it couldn't be more clear here as, you know, Western capitals, quote unquote, panic over this excessive concentration of nickel within, you know, China and Indonesia. And again, don't forget about the power of processing. You know, as people say, rare earths are everywhere, but if you want them processed, you still need to send them to China, 
And that's also true for synthetic graphite, where they own 99.9% of the market, from what I understand. So lots going on here, and we have a ton of news stories. We also have a fantastic interview here with John Gorman, president and CEO of the Canadian Nuclear Association, back after three years to give us an update of what's going on with nuclear. And a lot has changed, as you're going to hear an extended interview there. And coming up on this week's CEO Spotlight, we have Greg Smith, president and CEO of Grounded Lithium, who discusses the company's recent deal with Denizen Mines in regard to their Kindersley Lithium project. Fascinating discussion, very topical as well. Again, showing the relationship between the oil and gas industry and the lithium industry, this time in the Canadian prairies. And with that, if you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts and wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. And with that, let's turn to Greg Smith, president and CEO of Grounded Lithium for this week's CEO Spotlight. Joining us today, I am very pleased to welcome for the first time to the Northern Miner podcast, Greg Smith, president and CEO of Grounded Lithium. Greg, welcome to the show. Thank you, Adrian. It's great to be here. It's great to have you. I mean, lithium has been such an interesting story in the last few years. So tell us about Grounded Lithium. Uh, What are you guys up to? Tell us a little bit about the background of the company. Well, we formed about three years ago after doing some study and All of our team comes from oil and gas background, so we tended to approach it with a very similar perspective in terms of let's find where it works and how can we do this in the lowest cost manner. It's been our vision all along to be a low cost lithium producer in an environmentally friendly manner. And that led us to look around the Western Canadian Basin, where could this be? That then took us to, okay, where could it be the cheapest to develop? And that took us to a number of areas, and we chose Kindersley for being what we thought would be a premier area for lithium from brine development. Excellent. And that actually did anticipate my next question. So this is from brine, meaning it's from these kind of, and help us out here, kind of like a salt water type situation. I think people might be surprised that actually there is lithium in this part of the world. Yeah, there's lots of lithium in the brines. It's just a matter of where are the brines rich in lithium located. And there's brine everywhere in Western Canada. What people don't realize is most oil is produced with a brine of some kind, but the quality of that brine can vary considerably. So we purposely targeted areas where we could see very high lithium rich brines. And we also chose an area where there is no oil or gas in the system because from the perspective of pulling the lithium out of the brines, those are just contaminants to us and they must be removed before we can process the brine. If we don't have them, we save in some of our costs. It's very fascinating. Uh, Just before we go to the main project, then you guys have the Kindersley Lithium Project. It is a thing, isn't it? This crossover between oil and gas and lithium isn't there like within these industries like you do see like oil companies showing interest in lithium and the potential of extracting it it does cater to the skill sets of oil and gas expertise it's all about subsurface fluid dynamics which you learn a lot of when you do oil and gas activities so we're just translating our skills from the oil and gas sector 
into this new energy transition industry of lithium. And pulling it out of brines can be a very easy and inexpensive way to get lithium into the new market. Okay, excellent. So tell us then about the Kindersley Lithium Project. This is your flagship from what I understand. Uh, Tell us what you're working on. Well, we've assembled a position of about 300 square miles that we plan on developing. We've taken the one area for our first development. Based on our backgrounds, you don't develop it all at once. So we're developing about 25, 30 sections of land or square miles into the first phase of our lithium project. We've done a preliminary economic analysis of that area and it's telling us we can generate a 49% internal rate of return after tax and the NPV 8% after tax is about a billion US dollars or about 1.3 Canadian. And interestingly, uranium producer Denizen Mines has taken interest in the project. Can you tell us about that and how that developed and, and what is going on there? Well, clearly, Denison is in the industry of energy transition away from fossil fuels with their projects in uranium. They're a very technically savvy or technically astute company, multi-billion dollar company. So they're able to bring some expertise as well as capital to our project. It's structured in a three-phase earn-in approach where they can earn 30%, 55%, 75%, depending on how they invest. So if they invested in the entire project of those three phases, they would have invested a total of $15.2 million, $3.2 million directly to us, and another $12 million in terms of project expenditures. That's how they're coming into this but we're really looking forward to working with them because they're doing some very unique and technically challenging new projects in uranium where they're doing in situ extraction. And that does have some similarities to extracting lithium from the brines as well. Interesting. So in a sense, they not only might be interested in the lithium that you have, but perhaps even a little bit the expertise. Yes, I think we can benefit from each other's expertise, to be frank. But certainly we've been working on this for a while in terms of how do we develop it. We've drilled our first well, and it's a good source of brine for us. We've taken that brine from that well and sent it to different technology firms that can extract the lithium from the brine. So we continue to work with various lithium extraction technologies to find which one's going to be the best. And it's kind of this interesting world where there's more technology companies out there for lithium extraction than there are brine companies needing their services. Fascinating. Just tell us a little bit, how much is Denison investing? Like, what is the nature of this deal? What's the structure here? Well, there's three phases. So they've already paid us for uh, the first phase directly into our accounts. And now we're going to establish a project expenditures account that we will manage and they will spend 2.2 million in phase one. Phase two is the opportunity for them to invest some more money into us and additional 3.4 million into that project phase. And that should see us having put in place the pilot. We can then start to then take it to the next phase which is brings in more money to us and another $6 million into the project expenditures so that they are now helping us build the feasibility studies. 
which takes us closer to commercial production. So then what do you think is there? Like, what do you envision this project turning into uh, with the results that you've developed so far? With what we've done so far and the preliminary economic assessment we've done of our property, the first phase alone, and there's at least four, maybe five phases that we would see ourselves developing through time, but we'd like to see that first phase develop quickly to meet the demand that's going to be coming at us in that 2027 to 2030 range where the demand for electric vehicles is going to cause the lithium demand to spike upwards. So we want to be a part of meeting that demand. And if we build our project, we'll drill about 25 wells, we'll build a facility, we'll have pipelines pulling that brine into the facility through a very, very safe pipeline system, but it's never had any leaks whatsoever. So we're thinking about doing this in a very top-notch way. And in the Kindersley area, we'd probably have about 45 staff helping run the project and document all the outcomes as it's progressing. Okay, excellent. So you're saying that you had finished the PEA, the Preliminary Economic Assessment. So what are investors then, as they pay attention to this, and if they're interested in maybe taking advantage of the lower lithium prices right now, what do you have coming up in the next, say, I don't know, six months to two years? Like, what's next on your roadmap? Well, I think there's a bunch of work that we can do in terms of updating the preliminary economic assessment with other phases, as well as the most important thing for us is the pilot because the pilot will help us demonstrate what can be done with the brines out of this area. And it gives us the data that we need to build the next stages to do the feasibility studies. We'll need more data for costing for the feasibility studies. Perfect. And when you say the pilot, what exactly do you mean? Like the test run? Uh, What do you mean by the pilot? We would have a small facility on site that's processing probably about six cubic meters to nine cubic meters a day of brine and turning that into a more concentrated solution without as much of the other ions. It would then be able to proceed into what's called the refining stage where they take that highly concentrated solution and turn that into the battery grade products of either lithium carbonate or lithium hydroxide. That's our plan. As we're wrapping up then, Greg, uh, what is your message for investors as they listen to this story? Uh, What is the opportunity here from your perspective? The opportunity for us is we're avoiding a lot of shareholder dilution with this strategic investment from Denison Mines. Yes, we're giving up some of the upside, but this is really doing a lot of the heavy lifting. We're still very intimately involved with the project and Denison or the project expenditure account will be paying us to implement the pilot and all these subsequent phases. So we're doing the heavy lifting in partnership with Denison and they're helping pay the bills, which is important in this challenging times within the markets for any junior company, especially anyone in lithium. Greg Smith, President and CEO of Grounded Lithium, thank you for joining us on this week's CEO Spotlight. Thanks, Adrian. Great to be here. Thanks again to Grounded Lithium for sponsoring this week's episode. Turning to the website, we have a tragedy here. We have a couple of tragedies. In fact, Mally 
There was a mine collapse. This is Bloomberg News via mining.com. Mali continues search for bodies in collapsed illegal gold mine. And just a short story here. Mali continued the search Wednesday for casualties from a collapsed illegal gold mine where more than 80 dead bodies have been recovered. A tunnel at an artisanal gold mine site in the Kengaba district in the country's southwest collapsed Friday, burying dozens. Mambi Keita, a local councillor, said by phone, rescuers are searching for trapped miners, he said. And finally, illegal gold mining activity has surged in the West African nation, accounting for six metric tons of the country, 62 tons of production in 2022. 10%. According to the Ministry of Mines, Energy and Water, so a terrible story out of Mali, and one in Canada here, plane crash kills six on way to Rio Tinto Diamond Mine in northern Canada. This is Colin McClelland at the Northern Miner. A jet crash in the Northwest Territories killed four passengers and two crew members on its way to Rio Tinto's Diavik Diamond Mine, officials said on Wednesday. One person survived. The 19-seat aircraft went down near Fort Smith on the Alberta border Tuesday morning. The plane had just taken off from the town, about 740 kilometers south of Yellowknife. The survivor was taken to a health facility in Fort Smith before being airlifted to a hospital in Yellowknife, the territory's coroner's office said. And we have a quote from Rio Tinto CEO Jacob Staussholm, who said in a release, quote, I would like to extend our deepest sympathy to the families, friends, and loved ones of those who have been affected by this tragedy. As a company, we are absolutely devastated by this news and offering our full support to our people and the community who are grieving today, end quote. The plane was a British Aerospace jet stream registered to Northwestern Air Lease. According to the Transportation Safety Board of Canada, the board is sending investigators to the crash site. And we have another quote from Jacob Staussholm, quote, We are working closely with authorities and will help in any way we can with their efforts to find out exactly what has happened, end quote. Diavik is one of Canada's largest diamond mines and, em and employs over... 1,100 workers. So thoughts and prayers to all involved in both tragedies from over here at the Northern Miner Podcast. Continuing on, uranium producer Niger launches mining sector overhaul. This is Bloomberg News via mining.com. Niger temporarily suspended the granting of new mining licenses, the first step in an audit of its mining sector as it seeks to boost government revenue. The country will also take stock of existing mine licenses, according to a memo from the mining ministry seen by Bloomberg. Niger is among the world's top producers of uranium. France's Orano SA, Toronto-based Global Atomic and China Natural Nuclear Corporation are among companies operating in the country. The mining sector, which also includes gold and iron ore, is an area of national concern, according to the government. And we have a quote from Fatimata. Korgum, the Deputy Secretary General at the Mining Ministry, who said in a voice note shared by a junta spokesman, quote, We're trying to figure out who holds the mining licenses and what reforms need to be implemented in order for the state to increase its profits. End quote. Niger was hit with sanctions following a July 26 military coup that left the country cut off from the regional bond market and froze its accounts at the regional central bank. You know, it sounds like what happened to Russia actually happened to Niger. The freezing of accounts at the regional central bank and cut off from the regional bond market. I mean, probably the difference was, I'm assuming Niger didn't exactly have a ton of reserves like Russia did. And just finally here, the country recently missed a $38 million payment on a commercial bond, bringing the total missed principal and interest payments since the putsch to $485 million. You know, it's interesting, we're seeing here in Niger 
you might say underreported, kind of another example of this bifurcation of the global financial system here. I mean, we are seeing, you know, Russia collaborate with Burkina Faso, for example, as we were mentioning in a previous episode, you know, collaborating with Burkina Faso in order to help build a gold processing facility. So interesting here. Uh, Last year, the country was forced to cut the 2023 budget by 40% after its Western allies suspended aid. U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, who is currently visiting Africa, told Radio France Internationale that all the cooperation suspended by Washington could be put back into play if the junta restored democracy and released ousted President Mohamed Bazoum. Continuing in Africa, we're seeing this huge renegotiation happen between the DRC and China. The president of the DRC, Democratic Republic of Congo, Felix Chisekedi, just to bring you up to date here, was making a lot of noise last year, basically saying that you know China was not delivering on infrastructure investments in return for the natural resources that it was delivering. Subsequently, China quickly put out the red carpet for the DRC and uh, invited Chisekedi over to China. They had discussions. And so here we are a few months later, and now Chinese companies are investing up to $7 billion in Congo mining infrastructure. Reuters via mining.com, Chinese construction companies will invest up to $7 billion in infrastructure projects as part of an agreement over their Sico Mines Copper and Cobalt joint venture in the Democratic Republic of Congo, they said on Saturday. So this is copper and cobalt. Both parties agreed to maintain the current structure of the shareholding while the Chinese partners, Sino Hydro Corp and China Railway Group, will pay 1.2% of royalties annually to Congo, according to a statement. You know, just the fact that China rolled out the red carpet after, you know, disappointment expressed by the president of the DRC, I would say that shows the importance of natural resources on the Chinese agenda, right? Just to speculate out loud here, let's continue on this article. President Felix Chisichetti's government had been revisiting the deal struck by his predecessor, Joseph Kabila, under which the Chinese partners agreed to build roads and hospitals in exchange for a 68% stake in the joint venture with Congo's state mining company, Jekka Mines. Under the deal, the Chinese investors committed to spending $3 billion on infrastructure projects, but the state auditor inspection, General des Finances, IGF last year demanded the commitment be increased to $20 billion. Chisichetti instructed his government to hold talks with the investors ahead of a visit to China in May 2023. He had aimed to boost Congo's stake in the joint venture to 70% from 32%. Quote, it's a win-win deal, end quote, IGF head Jules Alingente said in a press conference, adding that negotiations had not been easy. Let's continue on. Eric Singh's Kibali praises Africa's largest gold mine is amongst the greenest. This is a staff writer at the Northern Miner and maybe an image of the future here. Barrick Gold President and CEO Mark Brisso was singing the praises of one of his company's premier assets, the Kibali gold mine, to his audience in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Not only is the mine the largest of its kind on the African continent, but it is also one of the greenest. Electricity for Kibali comes from three hydroelectric stations and the newly commissioned 16-megawatt solar power plant and energy storage facility. With the solar plant online, the percentage of renewable energy at the operation rises to 85% from 81%. For six months of the year, when hydropower is available, all electricity is supplied by renewables. And we have a quote from Berceau, quote, Bearing in mind that Kibali is also a leader in automation, interestingly, 
The mine is a real role model for mining in Africa. As a long-standing partner of the Democratic Republic of Congo, we built Kibali in the remote northeast of the country, opening up a new mining frontier and, in the process, also promoted the development of a flourishing local economy. Barrick's total in-country investment so far has been $4.7 billion. You know, comparable, I would argue, to the $7 billion we're seeing out of China. So that is interesting, isn't it? So it's not like the West is doing nothing here. There's also another mine in Africa that Barrick is working on here. Barrick speeds up Zambian copper mine expansion. This is Jackson Chen at the Northern Miner. The proposed expansion of Barrick Gold's Lumwana copper mine is being accelerated with first production scheduled for 2028. CEO Mark Brisso told Zambian President Hakindi Hichilema in their meeting Tuesday. So more inroads in Africa from Barrick. According to Barrick, the Super Pit expansion project will transform Lumwana into one of the world's major copper mines with projected annual production of around 240,000 tons per year over a 30-plus year life. It will be a key component to the Zambian government's drive to revive the country's copper industry over the next decade. And we have a quote here from Mark Brisso again. In line with Barrick's partnership philosophy, our REDD Plus initiative will uplift our host communities through conservation of the natural forests surrounding the mine. Resources have already been allocated and engagement with communities is underway. You know, it comes up in the interview with John Gorman coming up, how John was saying, you know, the nuclear industry, in order to deal with nuclear waste, it actually pays up front the costs that will be associated with nuclear waste. It seems here we're seeing with Mark Brisso here, you know, this idea, as he says here, resources have already been allocated. I mean, John Gorman was saying, you know, maybe other extraction industries should take a page out of the playbook of the nuclear energy industry of paying for these kinds of conservation and ESG and just dealing with the waste side of the environmental issues, paying for that up front. Interesting call and here, Brisso, I mean, it sure must build goodwill if you're already paying for it ahead of time. And finally here, the expansion adds to a flurry of copper activity in Zambia. With First Quantum Minerals announcing just over six weeks ago, it had inked a deal with Mimosa Resources to fast-track development of its fish-tie copper project in the country's south-central region near the border with the Democratic Republic of Congo, which we keep coming back to here. First Quantum, rattled by the forced closure of its flagship copper mine in Panama, was also said to be in talks to sell a stake in its Sentinel and Kinsanchi copper mines in Zambia, though no agreement had been reached. Another thing here, just scrolling down a bit, in association with the expansion, Barrick has also launched a business accelerator program designed to build the business capacity of the Zambian contractors in its supply chain. More goodwill. Equipping them to grow and diversify their enterprises and remain sustainable beyond Lumwana's life of mine. Pretty interesting moves by Barrick in Africa there. Continuing on, just a couple of lines here from an interesting story. World's biggest jeweler, Pandora, stops using mined silver and gold. This is Reuters via mining.com. Pandora, the world's largest jeweler by amounts of products sold, has stopped using mined silver and gold and now only manufactures with recycled precious metals, which require less energy to produce. The Danish company, known for its $65 to $95 charm bracelets, buys around 340 tons of silver and one ton of gold every year. Its supply chain generated 264,000 tons of CO2 in 2022, according to its annual report. 
And it does cost more if we scroll down a bit. And here's a quote from Mads Twami Madsen, its Senior Vice President of Communications and Sustainability. Quote, we pay a premium for recycled because we also need to help our suppliers make these transitions. So it's almost back to this idea of ESG metal. In this case, it takes less energy, so theoretically better for the environment. Very interesting. Paying more. And a couple more here. Aluminum price jumps after report EU may sanction Russian metal. This is Bloomberg News. Via mining.com, aluminum rallied in London after Politico reported that the European Union is considering sanctions on Russian aluminum ahead of the second anniversary of the invasion of Ukraine. Prices rose as much as 3.6% on the London Metal Exchange as the report raised fresh concerns about the flow of Russian metal into Western markets and U.S. and European aluminum stocks jumped. However, while some EU member states are pushing for aluminum sanctions as the bloc shapes plans for a 13th package, the idea remains controversial in several capitals, people familiar with the discussion told Bloomberg. Any sanctions would require unanimous support of the EU's 27 members. Politico reported on Tuesday that EU countries will soon start discussing measures that could lead to a full ban on Russian aluminum, citing EU diplomats. Very interesting development there. And finally, a couple of headlines here. Guatemalan Ministry of Mines to review all mining licenses. So Guatemala, the latest to review its mining licenses. I mean, we just saw that with Niger. And here it says, according to local media, the new head of the Ministry of Energy and Mines, Victor Hugo Ventura, announced the measure in response to multiple complaints regarding bribes, corruption, and other illegal activities taking place within the country's mining sector. Very interesting. And here in Canada, Chiefs of Ontario asked for year-long pause on claim staking. This is Amanda Stutt for the Northern Miner. The Chiefs of Ontario are urging the province to call a 365-day moratorium on the Mining Lands Administration System beginning on January 24th. The move follows an exponential rise in the number of mining claims being staked over the past year on First Nation territories, some as high as 30%, the highest annual number of mining claims staked in Ontario over the last six years, according to the chiefs. The organization said the increase in claims leads to a quote-unquote insurmountable administrative burden for First Nations communities responsible for reviewing and responding to the mining claims. A resolution calling for a pause was passed at the Chief's Assembly in the fall. And we have a quote from Ontario Regional Chief Glenn Hare, who said in a statement, quote, mining claim staking continues to grow at a pace that far outstrips the ability for First Nations to respond and directly impacts our inherent treaty and constitutionally protected rights. Very interesting development there. And we're going to return to this issue in a future episode with the new president of the AME, likely in February. Those are your news stories. Now, let's take a look at metal prices. Turning to metal prices, let's take a quick look at the bond market. And the U.S. 10-year bond is yielding 4.06%. That is 0.06% lower than last week. So still above 4% there on the U.S. 10-year, but coming down slightly. The U.K. 10-year gilt is yielding 3.87%, and that is 0.08% lower than last week. And the Italy 10-year bond is also lower at 3.76%. That is down 0.11%. 
Turning to precious metals, gold is at $2,037 even per ounce. That is $8 higher than last week. Silver is also higher at $23.29 per ounce. That is $0.81 higher than last week. Platinum is at $925.65 per ounce. That is $31 higher than last week. And palladium is at $974.78 per ounce. That is $39 higher than last week. So platinum and palladium are now about $49 apart here. So continuing to be very close to each other in price. Turning to industrial metals, copper is at $3.87 per pound. That is 12 cents higher than last week. Iron ore is at $135.55 per metric ton. Pretty much even with last week, 13 cents higher on the week, so almost even there. Aluminum is at $1.02 per pound, that is 4 cents higher than last week. Lead is at 99 cents per pound, that is 4 cents higher than last week. Nickel is also higher at $7.50 per pound, that is 33 cents higher than last week. Tin also is higher at $12.10 per pound. That is 62 cents higher than last week. Cobalt is unchanged at $13.22 per pound. Lithium is 3 cents higher at $13.30 per kilogram, but pretty much maintaining its lows there. Uranium is unchanged at $106 per pound. And zinc is 4 cents higher at $1.16 per pound. Zooming out, looks like a pretty good week for the metals here. Basically, Everything, for the most part, is higher. Is anything down? I don't see a single metal that has fallen here. So looking as if the metals are working in harmony here as a group here, so maybe responding to a certain level to larger macroeconomic factors such as the dollar, maybe oil, and more. And those are your metal prices. Coming up, I'm very pleased to welcome back to the show John Gorman, president and CEO of the Canadian Nuclear Association. And as John mentions, he hadn't been on the show since December of 2020. There has been an enormous amount that has gone on in the nuclear energy industry. So we get a full update from John, who was at COP28. And everything that is going on in the big picture here, what are the initiatives? What is going on? What are the technologies? everything. So a wonderful discussion here. It was great to catch up. I hope you enjoy it. And I will see you on the other side. Joining us today, I'm very pleased to welcome back to the Northern Miner podcast after a few years here, John Gorman, president and CEO of the Canadian Nuclear Association. John, welcome back. Hello, Adrian. I'm delighted to be back. And uh, yeah, I can't believe I think the last time we spoke was December 2020. I can't believe that much time has passed and, and a lot has changed, as you suggest. Well, what a weird time that was, hey, 2020. I mean, you think, first of all, it's been a while, and then you just think of where we all were, you know, psychologically there in the middle of a pandemic. So yeah, and so the years passed. Well, bring us up to date then, John. Tell us, I mean, so much must have changed. Uh, bring us up to date here. Uh, what's new in nuclear since we last talked? 
there just is so much that's new. I mean, it's a night and day, really. Even in 2020, Adrian, I think I had difficulty finding a federal minister who would say the word nuclear behind a microphone. And of course, uh, what we've seen since that time is just the growing realization that uh, meeting our GHG emission targets, uh, both nationally and, and as a world, hitting that net zero future is not possible without very significant amounts of nuclear in the mix. And so what we've seen here at home in, in Canada and, and, and globally since 2020 has been this growing uh, recognition and now support uh, in terms of policy and uh, programs and and funding that that is required to to take this remarkable technology, and I'm sure we'll talk about the the technologies that have been sort of mainstream for the last sixty years, and now the new technologies, the small modular reactors, to take these and be able to deploy them to complement the other green energy technologies that we have and meet the world's needs. Uh, yeah, so it's it's a very exciting time. A lot has changed. And, you know, budget 2023 was really the pivotal moment for nuclear here in Canada in terms of switching from trying to seek that recognition and support to now just needing to get things done and, and the industry going all out to serve Canadians and, and hopefully bring Canadian nuclear to the rest of the world. Well, it does have that expertise in Ontario, doesn't it? They've never really stopped. You know, speaking of the how the conversation has shifted for me, it was when I saw that headline in the background of COP28, I think it said crippling nuclear energy by 2050. And at that point, uh, you know, it kind of just the alarm went off in my head. And it seemed to me as if this long PR battle that had been waged by the likes of Cameco, I'd say quite effectively that, you know, uranium is the solution to the environment, not a not not the opposite, you know, that this campaign had finally broken through and that, you know, the political establishment, for lack of a better term, was ready to embrace in a very real way nuclear energy. And it sounds to me from what you're saying about budget 2023, that the dollars and cents have been kind of allocated, so to speak. You know, they have been. What we saw in, in, in budget 2023 here in Canada was nuclear's inclusion in the suite of clean technologies that are being supported by policies and programs and uh, investment tax credits here in Canada. So it it was fully embraced. Some of the, the technologies that come to mind more quickly, right, whether it's wind or solar or, you know, water power. So, so nuclear is right up there and, and Canada has really great resources in all of those areas. But I, I would argue that that nuclear is a real source of Canadian pride and, and expertise. Adrian, you mentioned, you know, COP28. I got to tell you, I am still astounded. I've been with the Nuclear Association for for five years now, and we have a quite a quite an active uh, international program. And we we collaborate and coordinate our activities, not only with Canadian industry, but with our Canadian government. And Canada is without a doubt a shining star on the world stage in terms of other nations looking to us for uh, excellence in practice and leading um, certainly the the allied world in terms of um, how we're developing and, and deploying and, and refurbishing nuclear, the work that we're doing with uh, medical isotopes, uh, the incredible uranium 
uh, supply that that we bring to the rest of the the world, etc. It's incredible. And so when we were at when we were at COP twenty eight this past November, it was such uh, an exhilarating and satisfying experience, really, to join an audience that was watching twenty two leaders from uh, nations around the world who committed to tripling global nuclear by 2050. And of course, Canada was one of those uh, signatories. And we we went from there immediately onto a a stage with about 150 corporations, major, major corporations from around the world that have committed, have pledged to helping uh, make that goal of tripling nuclear by 2050 a, a reality. So you bring this together, the, the momentum that we saw growing from 2020 when you and I last spoke to through budget uh, 2023 here in Canada, when we got that full recognition and support, and then coming out of COP28 and seeing that nations around the world uh, had committed to the same trajectory of, of tripling global nuclear. And you really get the sense that now the industry and policymakers have shifted from, you know, just trying to get the programming right to actually needing to get things done. And that's where we are now, where we need to get things done. And the industry government is very focused on that, both at home and and many nations around the world now. Yeah. And that's exactly what I'm kind of curious about in my next question, which is, what does it mean? I mean, we hear all these statements from political leaders, you know, in a sense, there's finally been this embracing of nuclear energy. So when we have, you know, budget 2023, when we have COP28, in a practical sense, like, what does it mean? Are they going to build nuclear reactors? I guess it's a multi-pronged plan. Like, do you know, in terms of just like the pragmatics of this, like, what does it actually mean? Well, what it means is a world that needs to focus on getting things done, as I suggested. And there are, I would say, about seven potential bottlenecks or roadblocks that could stop us from tripling the amount of of nuclear we have globally right now. And Adrian, some of those bottlenecks, they are shared by all infrastructure sectors or or energy sectors, clean energy sectors. They're things like availability of financing. They are things like workforce, human talent, the availability of people. How are we going to go through this energy transition where we are doubling or tripling the amount of energy generation that we have as a world? Are we going to have enough people to do it? I mean, that's it's certainly it applies to nuclear. We need nuclear engineers and we need, you know, the highest skilled labor in the world, frankly, for the nuclear sector. Are we going to have enough of those people, supply chain uh, related issues, et cetera? So there are a number of these things that we have to tackle as we're trying to get things done. And, and in the case of nuclear, we also have some things that are specific to our sector. And those might include the uh, nuclear fuel cycle, making sure that we've got an ecosystem so that we have the traditional conventional types of fuel as well as the new types of fuel that are needed for some of the new small modular reactors, for example. We have specific regulatory challenges in the nuclear sector because we have such a rigorous uh, regulatory and licensing process. And so we have to look at the amount of time it takes to build things out. And of course, the nuclear sector needs permanent storage facilities for its spent fuel and for its byproducts. And so these are all of these issues, whether they're shared with other uh, industries or whether they're specific to, to nuclear, these are the kind of things that we're focusing 
focusing on now to make sure that they don't become bottlenecks for the nuclear industry being able to deliver the solutions that Canada and the world needs. Okay, but just in terms of, say, like, is there, I guess, another way of framing it is, like, is there a sense that, say, okay, in Canada, we need, you know, seven nuclear reactors by 2040, and we're going to put one in BC, like, or are we not really even at that stage yet? Like, is it still more, as you're saying, these bottlenecks, the supply chain issues? Oh, well, these things are happening in, in parallel. So, uh, Adrian, earlier you mentioned Ontario, right? And and Ontario does have a, a long history, over 60 years of producing, you know, almost two-thirds of Ontario's electricity. Imagine that, two-thirds of Ontario's electricity coming from nuclear. We've got one of the largest, if not the largest, nuclear plant in the world at, at the Bruce Power site, but also our assets at uh, Darlington and Pickering. But, you know, New Brunswick has also been with us uh, for decades. Um, all of these plants operating the can-do technology, which has been exported to, you know, six other nations around the world. And we are continuing to do refurbishments and new build uh, of can-do technology in other countries. The, the technology is, is being refreshed now. So Ontario and, and New Brunswick and we've made some announcements in both of these provinces about small modular reactors and large nuclear being built out. But what I wanted to mention to you, Adrian, is part of this evolution, this renaissance has been that we now see at least two new provinces having announced plans to bring nuclear into their provinces. So Saskatchewan and Alberta. You've probably seen the, the announcements. Um, Saskatchewan bringing small modular reactors to uh, to their electricity grid to, to help phase out some of the coal uh, that's there and, and meet their their net zero targets. They've got two different sizes of small modular reactors there now. One, a very small one that you can essentially fit on the back of a, a couple of uh, 18 wheelers. It's called the Westinghouse Avinci. And then a, a larger ones that it has uh, being rolled out uh, now, General Electric Hitachi units, the same ones that Ontario is rolling out. We see that Ontario Power Generation has partnered recently with one of the biggest players in the Alberta electricity sector to look at uh, partnering a joint venture on small modular reactors on the electricity system and we know that there's a ton of uh, plans being drawn up for not only Alberta's electricity system but also their heavy industry sectors and we see some other really important things too I could go on for a long time but Cameco of course Cameco the world's second largest exporter of uranium in the world we, we sit on the highest concentration the purest uranium uh, uranium in the world here in Canada joined up with Brookfield, a Canadian financing firm, and bought Westinghouse, uh, which is, you know, one of the world's largest uh, conventional uh, nuclear suppliers and, and is now in small modular reactors. So Canada now has not only its its can-do technology, which is uh, being refreshed uh, through Atkins Realis and uh, under a, a new uh, brand called Monarch, but also now just acquired the, the Westinghouse suite of technologies. And when you combine that uh, with uh, New Brunswick's leadership around uh, a couple of technologies, Moltex and, and ARC, and when you look at what Ontario is doing with announcements around new large build and, and with uh, Global First Power and uh, USNC in terms of building out uh, small modular reactors, you can see we have a huge amount of activity. So I'm just gonna bring that back to your question. Do we have a roadmap? We're working on that roadmap now, but organically you can see we've got a number of technologies, both large and small that are being built out, not only in the traditional provinces of Ontario, New Brunswick, but in other parts of the country. And I think we're going to see nuclear in almost every province and territory as we head towards 2050. 
Okay, excellent. So in a sense, it is still being worked out as far as the actual plan here as to how to how to move ahead, as you say, the roadmap. And we discussed SMRs. I think that was the first time I'd really heard of them, or went in depth at least in a real way when we first talked. How is that whole, I mean, you've mentioned them a few times here, so it sounds like it's quite viable. I have heard some skepticism out there from nuclear people that, you know, SMRs are a marketing term. I mean, do you have any thoughts on this? Uh, Have you heard this? Oh, yeah, of course. And let's look at this from the perspective of the critics. Uh, it's, It's true that the small modular reactors are just being deployed now. We're going to see, uh, and we won't see the first ones connected uh, here in Canada until the late 2020s. A number of different sizes um, that we'll we'll see deployed and different technologies. For example, Ontario Power Generation's GE Attache 300 megawatt small modular reactor will be connected at the Darlington site in 2028 or 2029. And they have announced that they will be building four of those. Saskatchewan has said that they are building four of that same technology. So we're going to see eight of these being rolled out sort of at the same time. And similarly with the other technologies where, you know, in, whether it's New Brunswick with ARC or, or Saskatchewan with Vinci, et cetera, Westinghouse Vinci, we're, you know, we're, we're seeing these things now being deployed. But the answer to the critics has to come with, you know, the, the proof of, of these being deployed properly and performing properly. And so this will prove out over the next seven, eight, uh, nine years. And, and the, the industry is laser focused on ensuring that just like our refurbishments, you know, the $26 billion refurbishment of the existing nuclear plants in Ontario, uh, which is on budget and ahead of schedule, these SMRs have to, you know, have to be deployed and, and, and function the way that they uh, the way that they are are uh, uh, promising to to do that. So I don't see I don't think we'll see an end of, to that controversy until we actually deliver on on these small modular reactors. But when you consider that this industry has been building and and uh, operating nuclear of different technologies around the world for more than sixty years, you can have a pretty high sense of confidence that these next generation technologies are are being uh, developed and deployed by very capable industry players. And we're going to see that uh, they, they deliver as promised. Okay, excellent. And you're mentioning, you know, Cameco, you know, being the second largest exporter of uranium. How are we doing? How is the West doing, shall we say, in terms of uranium supply? I mean, you ask uranium investors, they think this thing's going to the moon. And what is your view on the supply demand situation? Is there cause for concern? You know, the megaton to megawatt program sounds like it's done. Kazakhstan just announcing, I think, last week that they, you know, don't have enough. What was it? Sulfuric acid in order to uh, process their uranium. What's your understanding of the supply demand situation for uranium? Well, let's take that in maybe two different parts. Firstly, just to to focus in again on Canada as a supplier of uranium, um, Cameco, second largest exporter of uranium in the world. But we also have some very promising, I guess you'd call them junior mining companies as well, right? Denison Mines or NextGen, which are also really, really well on track to developing new ways of, of uh, producing uranium, etc. Et so Canada is sitting a lot of uranium. We're not going to have we're not going to have a problem with certainly the supply to our CANDU reactors, our existing CANDU reactors, which are providing 15 percent of of Canada's electricity right now because they used unenriched uranium. But the dynamic that I think you're referring to, Adrian, is, you know, Russia's invasion, illegal invasion of the Ukraine has caused 
energy security uh, writ large to be an overarching concern. We're seeing that having secure access to energy supply across the board has now in, in many ways trumped the the question of climate change as, as an important issue. And at the time of that invasion, you know, Russia had secured a position in the world of supplying energy of different sorts to much of the world. And in, in the case of nuclear, uh, they were uh, the largest supplier of enriched uranium. It's slightly enriched uranium, I guess you would call it, that powers uh, nuclear plants in, in other places around the world. And these new small modular reactor technologies, they take a, a new kind of fuel, uh, most of them. And so what we're seeing is a, a rejigging of the nuclear fuel ecosystem in in the world and a retraction away from and out of Russia to uh, new supply sources from uh, allied countries. There's a, there's a word for it, it's called the Sapporo Five Countries because of a, a recent uh, agreement that was signed in Sapporo, uh, Japan, between UK, Canada, France, Japan, and the US whereby we are collaborating to ensure that uh, we have all of the fuel that we need of the different types that we need. And so Canada clearly bringing the actual natural uranium to the table and then these other nations being able to fabricate the different types of fuels. Maybe Canada will fabricate fuels in the future in terms of the new new types of fuels that are, are, are required, but that will be a, a longer development cycle. And so right now we're we're doing what we do really well, which is um, bring that natural uranium to the table. But yeah, the, the short answer is just as we're seeing um, a restructuring of energy systems around the world to try to meet energy security needs, uh, we're, we're doing the same thing with restructuring the, uh, the fuel supply. And the indications are that we're well on track to be able to supply all of the plants that we need to meet this aggressive future of doubling or tripling the amount of electricity we have worldwide. And just as far as the nuclear waste issue, I mean, this is still probably, you know, from the person on the street, one of the most common concerns you're going to hear with uh, nuclear energy is, you know, but what about the nuclear waste? And I don't really have a good answer, but it's because I don't really know. So I'm asking you, uh, what is the situation with nuclear waste? It seemed like it used to be a big issue. Is it still a big issue? Have we solved this issue? I think the good news is that we're we're making progress at solving the issue. It is certainly still an issue in in the minds of stakeholders who who don't understand how the nuclear industry deals with spent fuel and and byproducts and wastes of of all types. So maybe I'll I'll break it down that way for you. Starting with this misunderstanding around waste. The nuclear industry does not have a waste problem. It has a waste solution. And I, I really mean that, Adrian. It's the it's the biggest you know sticking point. The, the thing that we try to, to communicate as as loudly and as often as, as we can. You know, here in Canada, we we've been managing spent fuel and byproducts and waste from the, the entire nuclear ecosystem for more than 60 years. Nobody has ever been uh, harmed, let alone you know, killed by uh, nuclear waste. And there's a reason for that. It's very straightforward to manage. But the, the fact is that we need a, a permanent disposal site for the spent fuel. 
And uh, we are making a lot of progress there. The, the Nuclear Waste Management Organization is down to two communities, one of which will host the deep geological repository where the waste will be stored going forward. And then just a couple of weeks ago, or a small number of weeks ago, we saw that the a different type of waste facility, the, the near-surface disposal facility at uh, Canadian Nuclear Laboratories was approved. And so that will take care of some of the lower level byproducts that come from the nuclear sector. So so we're making a progress. And I think the, the point there is that, you know, we need the, the permanent storage solution, not only to uh, permanently store the relatively small amount of spent fuel and uh, other types of waste that we've produced, but because we're going to be um, building more nuclear, we need that permanent storage facility. The other part of the answer here is just, you know, the nuclear industry prepays for the, the safe and permanent storage. Uh, we know where every particle of spent fuel and byproduct and waste is from our, our industry. It's managed uh, properly. We send no emissions into the air. And as I said, it's a very straightforward byproduct to, to handle. So it's it's a really good news story. And I think we, you know, should be striving for is for other energy industries to be, you know, prepaying and taking in inventory and dealing with all aspects of its waste, whether you're a solar panel or a wind turbine or a uh, one of the technologies like gas or coal that emits into the environment. I mean, we, we all have to get a handle on our waste the way that uh, the nuclear industry has. And and so we try to bring that story to every interaction we have around nuclear waste. Okay, excellent. And just the last couple of questions here. So, and maybe this is an oversimplistic question. I suspect it is. But with this increasing usage, let's say, in the coming years of nuclear energy and with that the waste i mean is there a risk of increased nuclear proliferation or proliferation of nuclear weapons or is this like not even that closely related like do you have a, a sense for that or is that overly simplifying everything well yeah you know i think there's danger in, in oversimplification around important issues but there is no connection between how we operate our, our civil nuclear plants and nuclear proliferation for all sorts of reasons. You know, there's a, the enrichment that you use for any sort of technology for, for civil nuclear, for producing high temperature heat or electricity is so much lower than anything that's needed for weapons that it's just a completely a different category of fuel and and so people often sort of conflate these these two somehow but they're they're really very different and as you pointed out earlier adrian this megatons to megawatts has been an enormous success this is the sort of irony of it is that civil nuclear has been responsible for uh, essentially disarming the existing uh, nuclear warheads and and turning basically unenriching or or lowering the enrichment of those uh, of of those nuclear warhead fuels into fuels that is actually being burned in in nuclear plants around the world so it's just another example of the stigma and the misinformation and things that we need to work through you know as as a world as as we as we strive to to understand the facts and and be able to to meet the challenges of uh, decarbonizing the world and and maintaining energy security
Excellent. Well, that's why we're so pleased to have you on, John. And just one or two very quick questions here. So just on the international front, are you worried about France at all? I mean, it seemed like they were getting a lot of, and again, maybe I'm oversimplifying, but I mean, I think I was looking on Google, 62% of their energy coming from nuclear. All of a sudden, you know, uranium's $100 a pound, you know, and their Niger, uh, where it seemed like they were getting a lot of their uranium. Maybe I'm over-assuming things. That's off the table. What do you think of, you know, France? Do you have any thoughts on where France is right now? I mean, I do have a, a sense of where France is. France, you, you know, France, yeah, they, they, they get uh, more than two-thirds of their electricity from nuclear. They have for uh, decades. They've got, the, I think, one of the lowest cost, if not the lowest cost of electricity in the European Union. And they've announced very aggressive plans to, I think, as Macron uh, uh, President Macron said to reclaim the mantle, the nuclear mantle, and, and be a world, uh, the world leader in, in nuclear once again. But you know, this is such a fascinating industry, uh, Adrian, and it, it's a it's real collaboration and coordination that is going on between countries now, and and. Uh, uh, whether it's the fuel cycle that we spoke about, uh, the fuel ecosystem with U.S., Canada, France, Japan, and the U.K., or whether it's um, collaborating on many different other aspects of, of nuclear to sort of have a form of uh, coopetition in terms of how uh, we develop and, and deploy nuclear, because we haven't done it at scale for, for quite a long time, right? It's been a few decades since we really built out at the scale that we need to build out now. We've done it before, that rapid buildup of uh, nuclear around the world in the 70s uh, shows that we can, as a world, uh, do this at the at the, the speed and scale that, that's required. But we haven't done it for quite a while. And to ensure that you're achieving the sort of cost efficiencies that you need, you, you need to you need to keep repeating, right? So lather, rinse, repeat. And that's the sort of effort that we're seeing now between nations looking at how we're going to be able to to collaborate and uh, achieve that together. And I think that we will. So there's, as I said, you know, Canada is, is the nation that's being watched by everybody because we are doing everything right, you know, from refurbishments to the announcement of new large nuclear to the rollout of different scales and types of small modular reactor technologies. And we're, we're actually doing it. And that's in addition to our medical isotope business. But the other nations are, you know, equally just trying to work together so that we can make that full contribution to, to deliver to our full potential. And so we don't we don't really see these other nations as being competitive threats, but more of that sort of coopetition that I referred to. Okay, excellent. And my final question for you here is kind of a two-sided here in the sense that basically, how do you see this playing out? And if you can kind of fold China into that, because China seems to have, I don't want to go too far on this question here, but even India, I mean, but let's, you know, China seems to have a major rollout uh, going on here from all kind of, you know, reports that you hear. Uh, how do you see on a global level, how do you see this kind of nuclear rollout playing out? And if you can kind of speak about China a little bit within that context. Mm -hmm. You're so aware of this in your sector, right, Adrian? Uh, the mining, I'm thinking about critical minerals and, and things now. It's and I would count uranium as a critical mineral. You know, it's the critical minerals are almost the new fuel of of energy for the future. And we see that uh, 
China in particular, you know, has been positioning itself now for just over two decades to be, you know, a leader in the clean energy transition space. And whether it's critical minerals that it's been securing and 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 supplying and entering into um, deals with other nations on, or whether it's nuclear, where uh, they have already uh, begun, you know, that rapid deployment of of nuclear within China, that sort of lather, rinse, repeat type uh, cookie cutter approach to rolling out nuclear. And they are really hitting some impressive numbers, not only in deployment, but also in the in the low cost of electricity that they're they're bringing to the grid. So it, it reminds me of the question you asked just before this, which is what are other nations doing? Do we see France, for example, as a competitive threat? It's It's actually the opposite. We see these allied or Western countries like the ones I mentioned, making a concerted effort to collaborate to be not only supplying their own nations with uh, nuclear, but but helping other nations as well. And so a sort of, there is a, a bit of a, a race on to, in not just nuclear, but other clean energy and infrastructure spaces to become the more dominant players in, in helping other nations. And, and that's why we saw such an aggressive move, of course, by the United States with the introduction of the IRA and their Infrastructure Act. And chips and other things that they've been doing, you know, clearly signaling that they want to be the the clean clean energy power of the future. And so Canada is, is really holding its own on the nuclear aspect of that. But uh, to your to your question, as things play out in the future, we are going to see uh, we are going to see competition, especially between China and and, and some of these uh, Western countries to to be the preeminent supplier of clean energy through this transition. So it's very fascinating geopolitical space. Indeed. John Gorman, president and CEO of the Canadian Nuclear Association. Thank you for joining us once again on the Northern Miner podcast. It's been a real pleasure, Adrian. Thank you. Once again, a big thank you to John Gorman, and hopefully next time it will not be so long. Also, a big shout out and thank you once again to Grounded Lithium for sponsoring this week's episode. If you want to learn more, simply go to groundedlithium.com. And thank you, dear listener, for tuning in once again to the show and this incredibly interesting narrative that we participate in here on a weekly basis. Until next time, if you want to help out the podcast, please leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory, share it with your friends, and until next week, take care.